And worship is what we're about this morning when we come to Psalm 145. Hear now the word of the Lord, verses 1 through 7. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his grace is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have heard your word and we thank you that you have given us your word, that you communicate so much about yourself to us. And we pray now that you would work through me, that my words would not be my words, but your words, that the Holy Spirit would work in this congregation to bring understanding, that we would hear with spiritual ears. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, the first thing I want to show to you this morning from this psalm is that we are designed to worship, and we're designed to worship by praising God. And I want to start by defining what I mean by worship. So many people hear that word and they think that means what we do here at church, which is true. We're here to worship, especially today. But what I mean when I say worship here is more of a life attitude. It's more of a a lifestyle of bringing our hearts under the lordship of the creator. Um, So that everything we do is about him. And it's about bringing glory and honor to him. That's the kind of worship about which I'll be speaking this morning. And so we're, we're called to, to do that, to, to bring worship to him and honor to him with our lives, and we're called to praise him. This, this psalm is about how awesome God is. Um, the psalmist, who is King David, by the way, expresses in multiple ways the praise of God for his, for his mighty acts, for his wondrous works, for his awesome deeds, and for his abundant goodness. And we could spend all morning and all afternoon talking about those things. We will not, I promise. But I do want to elaborate on some of the works that God has done, in particular, his works of creation. Now, I know that probably there are some of you out there who have been on a, a really long flight. I, the longest I've ever been on uh, was from Chicago to Milan, Italy. 10 hours and 4,500 miles. I was miserable. I didn't sleep. There was two old guys in front of me playing poker all night with a light on, and I, I couldn't sleep. And so, but, but see, if you've been on a longer flight than that, though, you're laughing at me right now, right? I mean, if you've been on like a 14-hour flight, you're like, yeah, buddy, try going to Tokyo or something like that. Um, those are pretty miserable flights. But you know, the longest flight, I looked it up, and Wikipedia, which sometimes is truthful, says the longest flight in the modern era was from Hong Kong to London, 13,000 miles, 22 hours. Can you imagine? I mean, that's a haul. 
But think about this. The earth, the circumference of the earth is almost 25,000 miles around. So if you wanted to fly from Hong Kong all the way around the globe and back to Hong Kong, it would take you, what, 48 hours? If, if that was possible, if you could refuel in flight. I mean, who wants to be on a plane for 48 hours? That is awful, okay, unless you're first class. But even then, guys, Job 38, this is what Job 38 says about God. He says that, that God laid the foundation of the earth and he determined its measurements. So he simply commanded the earth to exist, and it existed. We, we are exhausted from flying around it. Imagine if we had to walk around it or run around it or drive around it. He just commanded it, and it existed. Let's, let's step outward a little bit. Let's talk about the moon for a second. Uh, I have to tell this story. The other day, I told Elijah that I loved him, and he said, why do you love me? And I said, because you're my son. He says, no, I'm your moon. And Okay. Well, the moon is 284,000 miles from Earth, and we've sent people up there. That's the farthest a human being has ever traveled. And it took three days for most of the Apollo missions to, to get there. Um, a giant leap for mankind, baby steps for God. You know, our solar system is vast. The sun is 93 million miles away from Earth. Neptune, which is the furthest planet, sorry Pluto, 2.7 billion miles away from Earth. And guys, that's just our solar system. I've, I've been looking some, some science stuff up. I don't really know science very well, but, but astronomers have found over 500 other solar systems just in our galaxy, and they think there could be as many as 100, let me get this right, 100, yes, it's a B, for billion galaxies, I'm, I'm sorry, solar systems in our galaxy. That's just our galaxy. God made that, by the way. He, he commanded it to exist, and it did. But then, if we move on into the, the rest of the universe, there's, there's a great quote there by a guy named... Mario Livio, an astrophysicist. He says, you know, estimating how many galaxies are throughout the universe is a pretty tough job. Sheer numbers is one problem. Once the count gets into the billions, it takes a while to do the addition. Go figure. While estimates among different experts vary, an acceptable range is between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies. Each solar system has a star at its center. Each galaxy has millions and millions of stars. There are 100 billion to 200 billion galaxies out there. There are infinite numbers of stars. We cannot count them, and we can never even, even get into a Millennium Falcon and hit light speed and, and see any of all of them. I mean, it, it's just so vast and so incomprehensible, we cannot even imagine. But God... Psalm 147.4 says that he determines the number of the stars and he gives to all of them their names. Greatly is his name to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. But there's more. We'll go back to Job 38 for a second here. You know, Job 38 is one of those passages where you really see an interesting side of God. God gets kind of snarky with Job. Job. 
He's all sarcastic on him, like, hey, where were you? Surely you were there, Job, when I, when I made everything, you know. He wants to give Job a right perspective, a, a, a perspective of humility, a perspective of his greatness. I'll just summarize for you some of the things that God says that he has done. He tells the oceans how far they can go. You know the Pacific Ocean that has caused so much destruction in recent years with tsunamis? If God wants that tsunami to stop, it stops. He tells the morning when it's time to be morning, wouldn't that be nice to get some extra sleep? Say, hey morning, it's not time yet. He directs light, darkness, snow, hail, wind, rain. We can't even predict the weather, much less direct it. He controls and provides for all the animals right down to the microscopic ones. God is the master over all creation. And King David in this psalm recognizes this and delights in this. Proverbs 21.1 is a great humbling verse about kings. It says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Even the greatest king, even King David, does God's will, whether they do it willfully or not. God is the master. God is king. And it makes you feel kind of small. Uh, I always, my whole life, wanted to visit the Rocky Mountains, and I got to last year for the first time and Colorado, and some of those 13,000-foot peaks just blew me away. I, I stood there, and I felt tiny. I felt minuscule in front of those things. But then I started thinking about Everest, 29,000 and some odd feet. It's almost six miles high. Mount Everest is a grain of sand to God. As John Piper once said, if creation has glory that stops our mouths, the glory of the one who conceived it and created it will put that in the shade. He tweeted that, by the way. Twitter's pretty fun. So that's just creation. That's just God sustaining his creation. We haven't even gotten to his miracles yet. You, you know many of the miracles that the scripture describes. When man tried to build a tower to get to the heavens, God laughed and picked them all up and displaced them all over the globe and confused their languages. That's miraculous. In Egypt, the mighty Pharaoh who controlled a great portion of the known world was brought to his knees by God's miracles. And then God parted the Red Sea so his people could walk across. And then they went into the desert and it rained food, and God didn't even need that machine from Claudia with a chance of meatballs. He made water come out of rocks. God brought down Jericho with just people marching around it and blowing trumpets. God made the sun stand still, etc., etc. And that's not even the most amazing thing. I think the most amazing thing God has done is his, is his work of salvation. You know, despite us having, having a, a bent toward worshiping anything but God, despite us being rebellious towards him, God sent his son Jesus to rescue us. He sent his son Jesus to call us from death to life. He sent his son Jesus 
to live the life that we were supposed to live, but die the death that we deserved to die for our sin. Jesus died on a cross. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. The victory is secure. God is building his church. The gates of hell shall not overcome it. And on and on we could go with the wondrous works of God. As Charles Spurgeon once said about this praising God, he says, go on, brother, go on, pile it up. Say something greater, grander, and more fiery still. You cannot exceed the truth. You have come to a theme where your most fluent powers will fail in utterance. We are designed to praise God, to to bless his name forever, to declare his mighty acts, to meditate on the glorious splendor of his majesty. We are often captivated by Babylon instead. You might be sitting here thinking, this is not really me. I'm not really the kind of person who praises anything. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, this is true, but this is also very difficult. I feel coldness towards God. I've been hurt too much. Or I'm apathetic towards God. Would you turn to me Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel 4, verses 29 through 37. We're going to look at the first half of that for right now. And while you're turning there, I, I just want to say, if, if there are so many examples of, of why God is worthy of our worship, then why do we still refuse to worship Him? Why do we struggle with this so much? It's a question that has haunted humanity since... Adam. Well, let's look at Daniel. I think that this will shed some light on the situation. This is on King Nebuchadnezzar. Starting in verse 29. It says, At the end of twelve months, he, being Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this... Great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox." And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws." It's interesting the comparison between David and Nebuchadnezzar. David declares that God is king. This is the first, really one of the first things he says in his psalm. Nebi is not interested in this. This brief section of Daniel is a, essentially a psalm of self-worship composed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine this. He walks out onto his palace roof. You know what's interesting? There's a lot of interesting things that happen in the Bible on rooftops. That's another sermon. 
But when he walks out onto the roof, imagine what he sees. He looks out and he sees, there's the hanging gardens of Babylon, which I built for my wife. Happy Mother's Day, honey. Oh, look, there's the wall. It's ginormous. Two four-person chariots can race past each other on the wall and still have plenty of room to spare. Over there is Nebuchadnezzar Field at Nebuchadnezzar Stadium where the fighting Nebuchadnezzars play. There's the Nezzar Chocolate Factory and the giant statue of the bunny. What a wonderful place I've built. God brings humbling judgment upon him because Nebuchadnezzar cannot see that there is one more glorious than him. God gives him the mind of an animal. God puts him into a position of dependence and, and humility that Nebuchadnezzar obviously could not have seen in any other way. God wants to show him who is more glorious. Now, just as a side note, imagine the queen in this situation. She's in the palace, chilling with her girls, looks out the window and Oh, my husband's in the field with the oxen. That's interesting. He's crawling around with the oxen. Okay, weird. He's, he's grazing. Oh, okay, I knew he wanted to eat more healthy, but oh, well, this is kind of ridiculous. But think about how humbling that would be for her also. But you know, many of us would rather that. Many of us would rather actually live like animals, grazing around in the grass, than bow the knee to God. If we're honest, there is self-worship in our hearts. And like with Nebuchadnezzar, that self-worship chokes out the hot coals and the flames of worship for God. Or maybe there are no flames. Maybe there is only self-worship. It's easy to think like Nebuchadnezzar. It's possible that you've had thoughts like that this week. You don't have a Babylon, but you do have things that cause you to marvel at yourself. I have those things. Sometimes I cut the grass, and I walk out there, and I'm like, wow, look how awesome I am. Honey, come see how awesome I am. It's grass, people. What is your Babylon? What makes you worship the glory of your own majesty? Whatever it is, this thing has you in captivity. This thing has you captivated by your own captivity. It squelches worship and it creates apathy. You know, one of the interesting things about studying generations, each generation has some some common characteristics that are not for everyone, but very common. One of the common characteristics of the the Gen Xers and the Millennials, people around my age, is apathy. We look at life and we look at problems and issues and even good things and we just kind of say, whatever. You know, you, you see it in current events. In March, the whole world was talking about Ukraine, right? And the crisis that's going on there and how Russia was taking over and all this stuff. And now... I mean, I don't watch the news that much, but nobody's talking about it anymore. We camp out on issues, and then we just move on. We forget. We grow apathetic. 
Think about persecuted Christians. There are more Christians being persecuted now than in any time in history, including the great persecutions in Rome. But we don't really know much about them. For, for most of us, I mean, how often do we pray for them? How often do we think about trying to help them? I know that that is often far from my mind. We don't do that much because we don't think we're directly affected. But the irony is we just get really bored with ourselves easily because we're not designed to be worshipped. We're always looking for more, but then all we get is apathy. And still we're too captivated by our own Babylons. We don't care unless we're at the center. Great example of this is the NFL. It's so popular. I mean, it's killed baseball. This weekend, the NBA playoffs were going on. The NHL playoffs were going on, which I guess Canadians care about. Um, Major League Baseball is going on, and yet the NFL draft took center stage. Not games, not even regular, not even preseason games. The draft was the most important thing going on in sports. It's interesting to, to ask. A lot of people wonder what would happen to the NFL if you took away gambling and fantasy football. You know, most people watch the NFL to find out how their fantasy football team is doing. They don't really watch the actual games to follow an actual team. If you took away gambling and you took away fantasy football, I think interest in the NFL would wane drastically because no, we would no longer be at the center of it. We don't really care unless we're in the middle of it. We cannot get out of our own way. So sometimes God humbles us. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, like I said, was already a weak and frail and dependent person because he was a person. But he didn't realize that he was blinded by his own perceived glory. So God, like I said, made him an animal for seven years. And so as an animal, all notions of self-importance Self-provision and glory were stripped away. And afterwards, Nebuchadnezzar sings a different tune. Look at verses 34 through 37 in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has had his sanity restored to him. And he says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him, who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Maybe God has humbled you, brought you low, maybe some through trial, or tragedy, God has shaken you to your core. 
maybe this is merciful. Maybe he has done this to wake you up from a slumber, to bring you from apathy or coldness to joy and delight in him. When God sees fit to mercifully pull us away from worshiping at the altar of self, then we can be about the business for which he has created us. And that is to make him famous. You know, Psalm 145, back to there real quick, in verse 4 it says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You could also read that as, instead of commend, you could read that as one generation shall praise him. One generation shall hype him up, shall make him famous. We're designed to tell the story, the story of his majesty, of his glory to everyone. And we can be great storytellers. I mean, just look at the way videos go viral on the internet. I mean, you, you look at a video on YouTube and you are captivated by it. You just want to share it with everybody. So you share it on your, your wall on Facebook. You share it on Twitter or whatever. And it goes viral and everybody's seen it. Or maybe you're a business owner and you've, you've done work with a new business and, and you really liked their quality or you, you felt like they had great customer service or you had, they had a great product. And so you start spreading the word. You start telling people, hey, you guys got to use these guys. They're great. We're designed to commend things. We're designed to tell people stories about what is good. And this comes from God because we're designed to herald him, to tell people the story of his majesty, of his glory, and of his abundant goodness. Jesus makes this clear. He commands us to commend him. Mark 16, 15, he says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Tell everyone and everything, the king is here. The gospel is good news and it is designed to be shared. It is not designed to be kept a secret. Romans 10, 13 through 15, there in your bulletin, says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. People are not God worshipers by default. We will worship anything else and everything else by default. That is why we are called to praise God always, to commend him to other people always. Or as David says, to pour forth the fame of his abundant goodness and sing loud of his righteousness. There are many ways to do this, and one obvious one is personal evangelism. And I don't mean that you need to go door to door and hand out tracts. I don't mean that you need to, to share the four laws or whatever it is, evangelism explosion. That, that's, those are good things, but it doesn't have to be that way. Personal evangelism can be simply, as you go, sharing what God has done in your life with other people. Our prayer is that it would simply come naturally to us to want to commend him to others. You can do this by praying for missionaries who are on the front lines. You can do this by getting involved in ministries at HPC. One great example of this is 
is about our preschool. In our preschool, you might think it's about school, but really it's about evangelism. There are many unchurched families who walk through that door Monday through Thursday to drop off their kids. And they're wonderful people. And their kids are hearing the gospel. Most of us can't be teachers. Most of us can't go back there and work as a, as a preschool teacher. But there are other opportunities for you to get involved with that. If you listen, you'll, you'll hear about, in October, the fall party. Or in December, the Christmas pageant. And really all we ask is for church members to come and mingle with preschool families, to get to know them, to, to share your life with them, and, and maybe to have an opportunity to make Jesus famous among them. What an amazing opportunity we have right here. But it's all about making Jesus famous. And the question then hangs out there, what, what are we making famous with our lives instead? I mean, everyone hypes things up. Everyone has something they want to talk about all the time. I mean, one of the examples I thought of is there's people that, that talk about, like, health food all the time. You know, hey, I got this new uh, supplement. It's made of, like, seaweed and kale or something, okay? It'll be, be really good for your, for your eyes. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about that stuff. But, but, you know, there's people like that that they just, every time you see them, they've got a new thing they want to talk about. Everybody has something that they always talk about. What about you? Maybe it's technology. Maybe you are always talking about yourself on social media, commending yourself through that venue. Maybe it's education. Maybe you're always talking about that. Maybe you're commending that to your children, saying, hey, guys, the most important thing in your life is grades and college and jobs and money. In doing these things, are we nurturing new Nebuchadnezzars by commending created things as worthy of worship? Or are we telling them the story we were designed to tell of the one who, de- who we are designed to make famous? Maybe you're here today, maybe you are self-obsessed, like, like, like I often am. Maybe you are captivated by your own personal Babylon. Maybe you're opposed to God. Ask the question, why am I worshiping myself when God is so much greater? When he puts everything I see around me in the shade? If we're going to do what we are made to do, which is to make God famous, Everything starts with a big view of God. He is the majestic one. He is the king who turns the hearts of kings. He is Lord over all of creation. If that, if that is something that you have not thought about in a long time, or if that's something you've not believed, or if that's something you struggle with, I would invite you to think about what God has done for each of us personally. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, as I've already mentioned, died on the cross and rose from the dead and saved us while we were sinners. And I I want to to emphasize this. It It is not after we have cleaned ourselves up a little bit. It is not after we met him halfway 
in, in another place, it actually says, while we were his enemies, while we were hostile to him, while we hated him, while we were at our worst, he looked at us and he saved us. Not because we deserved rescuing, because it pleased him to rescue us. Friends, we're not just saved, we're adopted. God takes us and seats us at his table and made us his children. If you trust Jesus as Savior, you are God's child, made able to worship him. And that is 100% a result of his abundant goodness to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the good news. This is the best news. This is the one thing that we ought to commend above everything else. Let's make him famous. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we are in awe of you. We are in awe of your majesty. You are our king. We want to give you all of the the honor and the glory. And I pray that you would use us as you see fit for your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.